you know, do you want to have a go at polo? And I was like, absolutely not. Um, not is not my not my scene at all. That's royalty and rock stars and millionaires, and I'm none of those things. And they were like, look, just come down, give it a go. Yeah, write it down as one of the sort of life experiences, and you never have to sort of do it again. And I went down and rode around, and I missed the ball, and, and I was like, this is the best thing I've ever ever done. Howdy, and welcome to Horse People, a podcast diving into the stories behind some of the world's everyday questions. My goal is to weave a narrative about entrepreneurs, equine professionals, and horseback riders alike, and the stories about the lives they've built. I'm your host, Gideon Pekowski. My name is Nick May. I am a Chief Security Officer for big engineering and manufacturing company here in Norway. I'm also the joint founder of the Norwegian Polo Club, passionate horseman, and um, amateur farrier. Amateur farrier? Yeah. How did you get into that? Yeah, it's, it's um, well, I was, when we were looking at moving all the horses to, to Norway, we were, you know, doing sort of the, the um, how much everything was going to cost. And one of the things that we looked into was farriers and farriers in Norway are incredibly expensive. Mm. But at the same time, you don't need to be a qualified farrier in order to be able to shoot. Um, so I reached out to a good buddy of mine, uh, Dan Worth, who is uh, from Fat Lab Forge, who's based just outside Great Falls, Montana. Uh, and I said, uh, who I'd not seen, who I met probably back in 2003, we were doing a, a documentary for the History Channel on jousting. Wait, um, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we first, it, they, they took four of us, took four of us and said, right, we're going to do, nobody's done jousting like authentically. Um, since the time that people actually did jousting authentically. So everybody else uses like stage armor and balsa with lances. And they said, we, we, we need four idiots, um, you know, two Brits, two Americans. We're going to make some tailor-made armor um, and we're going to give you solid spears and we're going to give you two weeks training and then you're just going to go at it. You're kidding me. No. So I met, uh, I met Dan there and we just got on like an absolute house on, house on fire. And then um, in 2011, we went out to Montana. His parents run a, a guest ranch out in, uh, in Wolf Creek in Montana. And we went out there. We had a great time. Uh, Rocking Z guest ranch. Amazing place. And um, yeah, Dan was obviously knocking around. We got to catch up with Dan, spend a bit of time with Dan. And it was at the time when I was looking at bringing the horses over and doing the shoeing and I said look could I come back and you teach me the basics of shoeing and um so a couple of months later I flew out to Montana spent just under a month with Dan and he um he took me through the he th- took me through the basics of shoeing and then I came back bought all the gear and that was yeah that's 10 years ago well that uncovered a little piece of history that so is 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 that like aired? Did it air? Is it on? Is it, can I find it on YouTube or something? Yeah, it's on. It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. It's on. It's called the. It's called the tournament, and uh, I'll I'll send you the link later. Is a it was a whole heap of fun. Wow. Yeah. How did you get uh, tapped for that? It was. Um, I mean, there was lit. There was a. There was an advert in a magazine, and it was like, It was basically like, would anybody mind? you know, suffering a career ending injury in order to <laughs> you know, help make a documentary about jousting. And I was like, oh, okay, oh, I'll do that. Um, so yeah, applied and we did the sort of 
uh, a whole load of us went for a sort of casting and wow. yeah, rode around and did some stuff and uh, yeah, and two of us, two of us got selected. I'm surprised your acting career didn't take off. I imagine you're pretty, uh, you're pretty good in front of camera. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I think once I saw the, I came dead, I, obviously I came dead last in the competition, which I think probably, yeah. I probably put the end to my sort of acting career, but it was good fun. So the other things you mentioned, you're chief security officer and a passionate horseman. Um, how did you, how did you get to be like, how did you end up doing what you're doing now as, as a chief security officer? So I was, uh, I was in the British military for 16 years. Um, a little bit like the U S military. You've got the, you've got the army, yeah, Navy, air force. Um, so I was in the infantry and my unit specialised in um, dismounted close combat and um, heliborne operations. So I spent 16 years uh, doing that. And then um, when they would basically, how things go as an officer is you basically do sort of 15, 16 years as a, a, a commanding soldiers and going on operations. And then basically that you get put behind a desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really wasn't, I really wasn't that interested in being put behind a desk I had 20 years left to serve and I was like this is not what I joined to do so uh, I decided to leave the military in 2006 um, and went out into the to the real world thinking that it was all going to be you know super easy and um and, and it wasn't I didn't I really didn't integrate into normal society particularly well having joined the military when I was you know 19 years old and didn't know anything different very very different set of sort of values um so i was working in a job that i absolutely uh, that i absolutely hated at the time and then i saw a friend of mine on facebook and he was in the desert and he was covered in weapons and uh i was like what are you doing uh and he's like oh, i'm doing you know private security in iraq and i was like yeah that is yeah that's just insane he said well it's pretty well paid and i was like how well paid so, um, you know, fairly shortly after that, I got recruited to go on a contract, uh, started in Fallujah in Western Iraq mm-hmm. uh, and spent about a year there and then moved over to Afghanistan and I ran fuel convoys around the south of Afghanistan and then up into the sort of northwest and northeast of Afghanistan for a couple of years from there. Um, and then went on to another security contract, running security for a couple of the um, couple of embassies in Baghdad and Kabul, and in Herat, which is in the northwest of Afghanistan. Uh, and it's while I was doing that that I started dating my now wife. Um, and after getting blown up in Basra, uh, my wife, my girlfriend, then decided that perhaps a career change would be a would be would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. So. Um, having commuted from from Norway to Iraq and Afghanistan I moved to Norway full-time and uh, then started looking around for sort of security jobs in Norway and then started with one company with one company for seven years and then moved companies about a little bit over a year ago so yeah so now I work for a big engineering company that's uh, in the energy sector so if Shell or somebody wants a wind turbine building and setting up and maintaining and operating or an oil rig, then they basically, uh, yeah, our company is one of the companies that does that kind of stuff. And then we go and set up these facilities in um, some pretty safe parts of the world, but also some interesting parts of the world as well. And we have a big traveling population and 
So I deal with uh, all of the physical security. I deal with there's a lot of um, you know, espionage threats from um, not only competitors, but also nation states who are really interested in what we're doing in the energy sector. So I try and help with the security of that. Got a big traveling population, as I say, going to some pretty interesting places. And then there's the then there's the cybersecurity side of things as well. So I've just actually just finished a uh, a short course at Harvard, distance learning on cybersecurity risk management. But that's yeah, that's my sort of day job. Uh, but uh, yeah, and that's that that's what I used to to pay the pay the bills for the horses. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, your day job is ultimately just uh, a vehicle to to be with horses, I guess, huh? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Um. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. I I think most Americans recognize Fallujah because of the Chris Kyle movie. Yeah, like the, the is that like around the same time that you were there? Or is it different? No, I was I was there I was there a lot. I was there a couple of years couple of years after. So yeah, Chris Kyle. Yeah, that uh, that movie was set when the war was actually on, uh, and I was there in I started there in two thousand and eight. So it would have been a couple of years after the war. Oh, wow. nice. Uh, what, what still pretty still pretty still pretty interesting yeah I, yeah I can only i can only imagine uh literally one of the things uh i i've heard you say before is like you you always knew you wanted to be in the military um how did you know that <laughs> um I, I i don't know it's just always been there has never been there was never any doubt in my mind that i wanted to do anything else um, I can't remember even looking at doing anything other than joining. I'm not from a military family, not mm. from a military background at all. Just felt like it was the... Yeah, just, just spoke to me and I was like, that's, that's what I want to do. Nice. Did you get in a lot of fights like in high school and stuff? No, not at all. I didn't get in any fights. I got beaten up a lot, but I didn't get in, I didn't get in any fights. No, never, never thrown a punch in anger. Oh, wow. Only in defense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's good. I imagine, you know, these, these, this big company, when you're setting up an oil rig or setting up a big manufacturing, what are like the top three things that you think about when setting up something new or? Well, so the, the first thing that we will, the first thing that we look at is we look at the, we look at the threat. So we do a lot of, we do a lot of analysis and what is the actual threat? And that will be, you know, not only the threat, aligned with the sort of geographical area so if you're setting up in Libya or West Africa or Mozambique or you know Brazil you know what is the threat and is the, the threat is generally either is it terrorism is it espionage is it crime violent is it crime non-violent is it cyber is it political instability so what are the big things that could go wrong yeah. um, and then you sort of look at well and how would that be brought to bear against us you know, what are the vulnerabilities that, that we've got and where could it go wrong um and we kind of put the two together and we look at sort of likelihood and consequence you go know, well you know you go to brazil there's threat of terrorism is pretty low but the threat of violent crime is sort of pretty high and then you start doing all the analysis of you know what does that actually look like is that you know is that knife related is that mugging is that kidnap for ransom is that you know what is that um oh. and then we start you know, looking at the likelihood and consequence and, you know, the risk of, you know, fatality down to, you know, is somebody just going to have their property stolen? Uh, and that basically dictates the kind of protocols that we're going to put in place 
from a physical security side of things, um, you know, either for the individual or also when they're moving around and then what protocols they need for things like, you know, if you're going to, let's say, somewhere that borders Norway, but is a little bit further east, should we say that, um, you know, currently involved in a contract, uh, currently involved in a conflict, if we've got people going there, you know, do we need clean laptops? Do we need clean phones? You know, what's the, you know, what's, what's likely to happen? So, yeah, and then we just build the protocols out from there. Um, and um, depending on how nasty it gets, or it's, or it's potentially going to get, depends on how strict our protocols are. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. Is this what you envisioned doing, you know, 30, 40, 30 years ago when, when you no, first? Absolutely not. I was, you know, I was just, I thought I was going to be, you know, running around the world, um, you know, delivering British government foreign policy at the end of a gun. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I thought I'd just be a soldier forever. And, uh, and then when I realized that actually you're only allowed because your body pretty much only holds together till you're in your mid thirties anyway, you know, you, you, that, that that's going to, that's going to end when you're in your mid thirties. And I, I didn't really have a, a plan B. I knew I had a skill set, but I had no idea where I was going to end up bringing it to bear. And these kind of opportunities, certainly in the last 10 years of, 10, 15 years have really come to the fore. So yeah, security, the, the world's only getting a less secure place. So it's it's not about, it's a growth industry. When you mentioned earlier about how like you're a soldier for 15 years and then for another 15, you're behind a desk. Um, I couldn't help but think that your, your, your best playing years are your, your 15 and then you're put out to pasture and you're just like a, a recreational pony for the rest, for the yeah. rest of the time. So um a good transition to to chat a little bit about like how, what what got you into horses. After all, this is um, a podcast about horse people, right? So yeah. Um, well, I I'd ridden quite a bit when I was sort of between the ages of sort of ten and ten and twelve. There was a local stables to where my parent where I grew up, um, and that ended up sort of being a sort of where everybody who you know, when, when kids are on holiday, that's where you could sort of leave them and they mm -hmm. can help out around the place and do a bit of riding in return. So I ended up sort of hanging out there and, um, and did a bit of riding. And then like most, you know, like most guys, I sort of got to about 12, 13 and it wasn't really cool for guys to sort of ride. So I stopped doing that and went off and did other sports. And then I was out in Cyprus with the military and somebody said, you know, can you ride a horse? And I was like, well, kind of um you know do you want to have a go at polo I was like absolutely not um not is not my not my scene at all that's royalty and rock stars and millionaires and I'm none of those things and they were like look just come down give it a go you know write it down as one of the sort of life's experiences and you never have to sort of do it again and I went down and rode around and I missed the ball and, and I was like this is the best thing I've ever ever done when I finished in Cyprus I was like right because it was it was all pretty much subsidized by the by the government because it was all through the military and I dug into what it was actually going to cost when I got back to the UK and I was like there's no way on a on a on a yeah on an officer's salary there's no way that I'm going to be able to afford to do this um and I came back from Cyprus in the September um and the following March I basically sold whatever I could in order to get enough money together to buy a couple of horses and and that was that I was that and uh, just played as much as I could and as much as I could afford to. 
until the cash ran out and then keep to, kept on playing until the credit ran out and, and then just get just kept going at it. it it's it seems like polo is one of those things that um is just ridiculously addicting i've never met i i rarely meet a retired polo player no um you know it's like one of those sports that it gets a hold of you and it doesn't let go <laughs> yeah and it's also one of those sports in the equestrian circles you never meet a show jumper who's like yeah i used to play polo and now i do <laughs> or i used to play polo and now I play, now I, now i do dressage it's always you know the other way the other way around so there's something there's something about it which i've not been able to put my finger on what it is but it's just the it just seems to be the you know the the speed and the horses you know the relationship with the horses is just so tight um there's something about hitting that ball it just feels like the sun's coming out no mm -hmm. matter how many times you do it and how many you hit that one clean shot no matter how many times you've done it before it's just like i just want to keep going till i can do that again there's the the fact that you know you get to do it with some amazing people and um and great great friends you know there's been so many times that i've almost come off the horse just because i'm just laughing so hard <laughs> and yeah it just seems to be all of those things in sort of one package that just once it gets its hooks into you that's it yeah yeah i think very uniquely it follows like such a community sport yeah even though from the outside it feels like it's you know posh and for millionaires and royalty like once you're inside it you realize it's like oh wow it's a lot of people like like me <laughs> yeah yeah who were just who were just deeply passionate about polo mm -hmm. and some yeah everybody's from a different background and everybody's got different resources that are available but bottom line is you can go to most countries in the world and you'll be accepted purely based on the fact that you know you're just passionate about polo yeah you can like exactly i remember um my strategy has become to move to a new city reach out to the local polo club and get a foothold of like the like what to do and how to do it right and it's exactly like how we met actually is yeah or, to, or moved or moved to another country and <laughs> reach out to <laughs> yeah. um you must be the northernmost polo club in the world no i think stockholm is a little bit further north than we are mm. um but we're 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 up there yeah, yeah. we're we're one we're one of okay we're damn well we can we can leave the sweets out of it yeah 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 <laughs> um no that's that's awesome and and i think it's it, it like when i was in when i was in norway and i went to the norwegian polo club and it was like i just felt like you and and tea and everybody like opened their arms so so much to me uh because of that like shared passion for the sport yeah. and it always has felt like it's like a second family anywhere in the world yeah um and so i don't know if i've ever told you just how grateful i was for that because uh you know you're young and dumb and stuff but yeah i, I can't like thank you enough for for that opportunity it felt so so amazing to be able to no it, it know, was an it was an absolute joy to 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 have you along and 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 play with you so no not at all it was it was absolutely our pleasure you started writing you got addicted to polo you've sold all your belongings and eventually kept playing polo and now you're the co-founder joint founder with your um wife of the norwegian polo club like yeah 
when did you realize that this was a opportunity when did you realize that that's the the that's what you wanted to build so the the emphasis was very well we were you know Tara and I who's also a you know we met through polo um and we just loved playing together and we just have an absolute sort of blast and we were like well how are we gonna you know how are we gonna deal with our addiction from Norway because there isn't because there was no polo in Norway at all so how are we gonna are we gonna set up a few horses in the UK and fly back a couple of times a month or what are we what are we going to do um and we were like well why don't we just start following I mean how difficult can it be you know how I mean how difficult can it be so we brought a couple of and, and, it, and the mission had always been that we the main driver was we want to introduce polo to Norway mm. you know it was um it wasn't we didn't see it as a sort of business opportunity we knew how much we loved polo and we couldn't get our head around the fact that there was an entire country who just hadn't and just didn't have exposure to that so and a lot of horses, they, and, and yeah and and you know not a, certainly in the south it's quite a big sort of horse culture big show jumping and dressage mm-hmm. culture down here and and um yeah and and people are very close you know, really, really close relationships with the horses, uh, as they do everywhere around the world. So we decided, so we we started off with brought a, we sort of brought four horses over, and we just started just doing arena, mm-hmm. um, because that's what we had access to. There was nowhere. I mean, if you can find three hundred meters by one hundred and fifty meters of flat land anywhere in Norway, then please let me know. The um, you know, just doesn't just just doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, or, 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 is, or it's you know it's pretty rare so we started playing in the arena and the winters are so long so we started playing in the arena uh, and then we had the opportunity where we found a piece of land that was flat-ish and you know kind of about three-quarter size mm-hmm. um, and so we started you know we brought a few more horses over we got a few more members and um, started yeah that's when I started I started looking at sort of training horses because it, it was something that I was really interested in so we started sort of bringing on a couple of youngsters and training a couple of young horses um, and building the string as the membership grew. And then COVID hit um, and we weren't able to travel to and from the place where we had the, where we were playing and, uh, and using the arena. But we were very lucky in the fact that there's a wheat field on, we live on this beautiful farm, that there was a wheat field right outside the, the house, which was um, pretty much bang on half size polo pitch. Mm-hmm. So we turned that in, we, we replanted that, re- repurposed that, and we play three on three right outside the house. Um, so we're, you know, we're absolutely blessed. We're 700 meters from the sea, so we've pretty much got a sea view um, and get to play polo in our front garden. It's amazing. Yeah, that's that's the goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we're, really is, like... we're so lucky. We are so lucky. So did you just, like, uh, cut down the wheat field and put in some grass and turn it into a, a yeah I mean it's it's pretty ag- agricultural I mean we, we literally just plowed it under leveled it you know did as much as we could to get it as level as we could yeah um and they then planted it with I think it's uh about six times the amount of seed that you would normally use for a pastures because you need that um you know you need that sward yeah. as they call it of, of grass and then we just cut it and cut it and cut it um and to you know to force it to sort of grow out and give us that carpet and and, and amazingly um because we're pretty much on a on a hill the soil just drains really well that's nice so we 
you know, it doesn't get it doesn't get wet, doesn't get too dry. Um, yeah, we're super. It's just that the winters are a little bit long. Yeah, that's kind of the the way the cookie crumbles up north. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it, but it's pretty good in the fact that midsummer we do get to play chuckers at midnight because it's still the sun's still up. Mm. So we do we do our midnight chuckers, which is it's got to be one of the. I think it's pretty. It, yeah, I know Sweden's a little bit further north, but I, I, I'd like to think that we're maybe the only club in the world where you can play polo at midnight in daylight. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I got to go back. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting like itchy about having to go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what do you think was like the biggest learning from, from setting up your own polo club? The biggest challenge, and it's still, it's still ongoing, is very much like I was when somebody mentioned polo to me is, um, you know, everybody just assumes yeah it's elitist and mm-hmm. um you know norway's a very socialist country so the idea of you know people aspiring to be you know separate or elitist you know doesn't necessarily sit well with the norwegian psyche with a lot of people a lot of people um so it's trying to break down exactly break down those barriers of look it's not about rock stars and royalty it's just people that love this sport and love horses Mm-hmm. um so that's that's an ongoing uh that's an ongoing work and then just how difficult it was going to be to import stuff into into norway you know we're outside i know this won't mean anything to you guys in the us but we're outside the outside the eu so importing stuff from you know one country or from south america into norway you get absolutely hammered on the tax it, it effectively doubles the price of anything you're trying to bring into the country mm-hmm. um so yeah, just the input and, and there was nothing here. So every piece of tack, every ball, every stick, um, you know, every polo horseshoe, obviously the shoeing's different. Everything has to be imported. I didn't know that. That's tough. Yeah. How, yeah. how many players do you do you have now? It's I mean, it's still super small. We've got like 25 members. Um, I think we're probably the only club in the world that's got more members than it has horses. <laughs> so um you know we're but we, it's it's a, it's a small dedicate dedicated and passionate group yeah um who we yeah we we all love getting together and playing we're, we're just you know the members that we have are just so supportive and so much fun and being able being being in that position to put that you know help put that smile on people's faces is i mean it's just a privilege to be able to do that yeah that, that that must feel that must feel so nice. You must feel so proud of yeah. like the twenty five people that you've been able to. What do I want to say? Like get Co- as, coerce, coerce, Co- bully, bully, bully into, into, into the sport. Yeah, exactly. To your credit, like I'm in St. Louis, one of the you know old. I think it has one of the oldest polo clubs in the U.S. Uh, working polo clubs, like top three or something. Um, polo like has been here for a long time and. Our, our polo club is pretty small too. Like I, I can't imagine it being more than 25 players. If you're doing that over there, like you're doing something right. It's hard. It's hard to recruit new players. It is hard to convince people to, to get into that. And yeah, so that's, that's amazing. Kudos. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, the, yeah, the chat, we're, we're about an hour, as you know, we're about an hour and a half South of Oslo. And, and there's not that many people in, there's not that many people in Norway anyway. So um, you know, Os- Oslo's kind of the yeah. um, Oslo's kind of the center, and I think it's got like three hundred thousand people, and that's the capital city. I mean, it's just there's yeah. not a whole there's not a whole lot of people here. 
that's awesome. So the other thing I wanted to chat with you about was uh, your your podcast. Anything else that you wanted to mention about the Norwegian Polo Club? No, it's just it's just a whole lot of fun. I get to play with my wife, um, which you know is just uh, I get to play with my wife at home and my friends. Doesn't yeah. get any better. Yeah. Um, how do how do, do you guys have the, the an Instagram that's still pretty active in, in your website, right? So like if yeah, someone visits Oslo or Norway, they could just hit you up on there. And... Yep. So we've we've got we've got a couple of Instagram accounts. We've got the the Norwegian Polo Club is on Instagram. We've also got uh, Style Croc Torp, which I'll send you the link, uh, which is the Instagram account for our farm. It's got everything that we've got going on on the farm because we've not just got polo ponies we've also got ponies with a bunch of fella bellas um there's you know we regularly have moose um on the polo pitch all that kind of good stuff so we put that on there and then yeah as you said there we we start i started the the podcast so i've got the podcast the nrg podcast the horse that asked why and other stories started that in january mm-hmm. and uh, and that's been a whole lot of fun yeah what inspired you to start the podcast well i started it with my two very good friends so i'm the n of nrg then we've got the r which is ross ainsley and ross ainsley is a he's a five goal australian player who's based in new zealand who um trains some of the best polo ponies in the world provides a lot of horses to into the high goal um and spends a lot of time working with a lot of the high goal players on producing horses but he's also just started i don't know if you've come across it the mvp saddle so if you see anybody, uh, Facundo, Facundo Pieres, Adolfo, Campiasso, or Pelon Sterling, if you see any of them playing in a saddle that's got a light blue gullet, mm-hmm. um, that's one of Ross's saddles. So more oh, and right. more, more and more, I think virtually every 10-goaler um, now is in Ross's saddles. So... Uh, and, um, you know, I've known Ross for a long time and we just have an absolute ball. And his his knowledge of horse training um, is incredible. And then the G is Glenn Gilmore. Glenn is the, um, is the, still the captain of the Australian polo team was eight goals, now six goals. Um, and there is no aspect of polo that he doesn't know absolutely everything about. Yeah. So, and I was constantly hitting them up for questions of how do I do this? And because I was training, I was getting into the training of horses. And I, what about this? And should I be doing this? And how does this work? And and just the stuff that they were, and we were getting into all these discussions. Or well, what about if you did this? And um, and then we just started talking about. I said, look, your level of knowledge that you've got at the top level, you know, polo is knowledge in polo seems to be sort of a collection of old wives' tales and witchcraft and rumor um and you know whoever speaks with the most confidence um is the authority on how things should be done and i was like the level of knowledge that you guys have got you've played at the highest level you've played at the, you know you've played in the high goal um you know, you're you're providing horses and kit and equipment to the best players in the world we need to tr- find a way to get your level of knowledge out there um, to dispel all these myths and you know, nonsense and and fill it with evidence-based knowledge 
Um, so yeah, we've, we've started this podcast and we've brought on a load of guests, um, not just from polo. We've brought on an Olympic level three-day eventer. Dan, my, my buddy Dan Worth came on and he's done a farrier piece. We've had a couple of vets um, and also a lot of polo players as well. It's the and <laughs> yeah, and, and it's just it's just a great excuse. You know, uh, Ross is in the UK at the moment, just about to go back to New Zealand. Glenn's in Australia. I'm in Norway. We don't get to speak to each other nearly enough. And this has just been a fantastic way to get together once a week and just, you know, find out more stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I, I couldn't agree more. That, that piece of like it's witchcraft and it's authority and it's like all of these people know so much. And I'm just. I'm just a little, little amateur polo player that's yeah. gone around, uh, you know, tacking my own stuff when someone has a horse that can I, that yeah. I can borrow. Yeah, and it's like, no, don't, no, don't do it like that. You should do it like this. And you know, well, who do I, who do I? That kind of makes sense, but also what they've said that kind of makes sense as well. So, how can approaches be so different? And you know, if if you, for us the sort of lower goal amateur player who are, we're constantly looking to how things should be done. Yeah. And that, and you know, in polo, the handicap system just ha- comes with that authority um, that you just, uh, whether it's because I'm that sort of military mindset that I just initially just never questioned uh, and then just started going, well, how, what, why, why does this work like this? Somebody explained to me well, and, and it was just a lot of the answers were, well, that's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. But explain to me why this is like this, because it's always been like this. Um, so I was getting so frustrated and then just started speaking to Ross and Glenn and we just started. And they had a lot of the same experiences and they had some of the answers. But we also knew that we didn't have the answers. And that's why we started going out to subject matter experts. Yeah. What do you think is uh, like one of the biggest takeaways that you've had so far in your podcast? You've had like over, you've had a, a, a boatload of guests. I, I couldn't think yeah. of out of my head, but I wanted to say 30. No, not, no, no. Yeah. We've, we've, we're just over 20 episodes. Funny. Um, that you just never stop being a student, you know, you just never stop being a student. Uh, and, and everybody regardless of discipline has got something to bring to the table um and has got a point that's worth listening to and then and you can take something from everybody wow well that's that's amazing it's the the energy podcast yeah uh, the energy podcast the horse that asked why and other stories other stories yeah um really really highly recommend it i've been uh listening to them you know periodically now over the last like week or so and um I your your guys' dynamic is just so good. I like look at, I'm like trying to be as good as like you guys. It's it's uh it's quite incredible that you have three people on the podcast and you're you like riff off each other really well. You're like you're making jokes. It's it's like just so it's really entertaining. Uh it's and it's and it's it's so much, it's so much fun that we're actually going to go down to, we're all going to go down to New Zealand in January. And then uh, we're going to be joined by another buddy of mine who's a US-based player, but also runs a um, sort of film, small film production company. And he's going to, we're going to come down and we're going to film the three, because the three of Ross, Glenn and I 
we're incredibly good mates. We've been, we're incredibly close, but we've only ever been together, the three of us, physically, once for one dinner. So we're all going to go to New Zealand. We're going to ride a bunch of horses, um, you know, young ones, made ones. We're going to, you know, go and do some pony and we're just going to have an absolute ball. And then, yeah, buddy, buddy of ours is going to film it. Wow. Wow. Amazing. That's going to be a fun, that's going to be a good uh, video. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we're, we're, we're excited. But it's, good. it's just going to be so much fun. Yeah. That's going to be amazing. Uh, I'm interested about like the Russ, Russ's um, innovation in, in his saddle. Uh, yeah. We can, we can leave that for another day, but I'm, I'm just curious, like, how like how did that how that came up if you don't mind? Oh well, I mean, Ross has been Ross has been making saddles for yeah for a long time. He, he uh, the thing about Ross is, don't tell him I said this. Um, he, he he the reason that his knowledge is so encyclopedic is he questions everything. Mm. Um, and how can I make this better? Um, where can I find? somebody who's and if if somebody isn't doing it better how can i make it better myself he's one of those really annoying people that's just constantly <laughs> stri- constantly striving for for you know something that's better um predominantly trying to make things better for the horses mm-hmm. yeah and that's one of the things that really unites us is the fact that we are all so passionate about how can we make people's relationship with their horses better but also is there anything that we can do in order to make horses lives better mm-hmm. um so yeah ross has been making you know saddles and improving them for um yeah for a long time and he's just constantly been working and innovating and then he started partnering with elon sterling mm. um who we've had as a guest on the podcast who was just so cool he was so cool um so he started working with him as to you know what he wants from a saddle, and that's when things really you know, appear to really have sort of taken a turn, and just it's just been. And then um, Adolfo borrowed some, rode in some. I think Adolfo was filling in for Pallon, rode in some of Pallon's saddles, and was just like, "What, what are the, what are these saddles? I, I have to have these. What are these? Are the most amazing saddles I've." And it's just sort of taken off from there. But yeah, I, I mean, Ross is the guy. To, Ross is the guy to speak to um he knows yeah i mean he's been on a huge journey with his saddles and he's continuing to continuing to to do it and it's amazing to see um just how you know every tangola yeah and and a lot of the nines and the eights and yeah anybody who's anybody or anybody who wants a really good saddle for their horse um you know they're all they're all going into the MVP, you know the Ainsley Saddlery MVP because it's just a amazing saddle. We've got my wife's got one. I'm not allowed to ride in it. <laughs> the priorities are are, are yeah. uh, point there for sure. Yeah. Um, no, that, that's that's so great and uh, what a what a good story. And you guys met playing polo, right? Yeah, we met playing. There was a. Um, they'd organised the, the first one of the first tournaments in Denmark, mm. um, and we ended up just yeah we ended up playing and and again a little bit like um, yeah we just hit it off we just had an absolute ball, um, and then you know just the the bromance went from there you know yeah yeah exactly it just it trickles away it trickles out like that so yeah uh, wow what an incredible 
incredible and, and um, really great, amazing guests you guys have have had. It, it's it's incredible. I also think though um, the the polo world, the horse world in general, it's it's uh, amazing how um, uh, tight knit it is. You know, they say the six degrees of separation to Kevin Bacon or something. It's more like the three degrees of separation to Adolfo. You know? Yeah. It's it's a lot close, much closer net. You can get pretty um, what you would call famous people yeah. um, interested in, in being on something like this, which I think has been uh, really awesome. Yeah, and they're all. I mean, we've had Miguel Nevis Estrada, we've had Pelon, yeah, um, we've just had Lucas Monteverde uh, on, we've had uh, James Harper on. Um, you know, I mean, the, we've had some, uh, and we'll continue to you know, interview people, and they're just so so nice and they are so on point about their horses it's amazing they know everything every detail about their horses is incredible speaking about that actually have you noticed any like trends that they're they're headed towards like any equine or polo trends that you see are are kind of starting to shape up i mean it's always been about the horses and you know everybody now is I think more and more now people are looking at the the breeding, um, at the cloning. Yeah, certainly for the guys at the top level, they need such spectacular horses because if you look at the style of play, the way the guys are, if you if you watch some of the Argentine Opens for on YouTube from like back in the eighties to how people how the guys are playing now, the level of control and speed and the technicality of the game as it is now is just it's night and day and the horses that they need in order to be able to sort of make those that that play is really really special so it's always been about the horses and it will continue to 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 be about the horses and but what 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 we are what we are seeing is the the desire to know more about horses and improve horsemanship and improve horse well-being and particularly equine mental health and, and well-being and reducing anxiety in training mm. and playing um, is, is coming more to the forefront and recognising that sports psychology isn't necessarily just about the player, that the horses need to be mentally right for it as well. Wow. That's an interesting topic, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's there's an old there's an old saying that yeah, the horse is ninety percent of ninety percent of the game. Yeah. And what's common to the guys we've sp- we've spoken to, they're all looking for those absolute freaks of nature. Mm-hmm. You know that that have the athletic ability, that have the speed, and they have the brain. Um, you know, to be able to sort of cope with the pressure. So they all recognise that what they need to do what they do is something absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Um, awesome. I, I have a, like this section of the podcast that I'm calling the rapid fire questions yeah. that you wanted to mention before we move on to that. Well, I saw in the, I saw in the questions that you had about, um, about the practice that I did with the guys in Palm Beach. Oh yeah. <laughs> you were a high goaler for a second. Yeah. I uh, I won a competition run by um, run by the guys at uh, either uh, the Polo Channel or Horseplay TV, depending on how you want to look at it. And uh, the prize was to play in a 26 goal practice with uh, Adolfo Cambiasso uh, and a couple of other you know people as well. And 
Um, it uh, it went on the number of likes that you were going to get on Instagram, and uh, and I didn't I didn't win, but uh, I came pretty close. So the guys got in contact and said, "Look, if you're going to be in Florida, then let us know, and we'll you know, and we'll we'll organise something for you." And I said, "Well, as luck as luck would have it." um yeah we were planning a we were planning a trip the following year um so we went to valiente um and were hosted by the genovitz family and um i got to play in a practice with uh, my team was uh, i think it was me facundo pieres juan britos and diego cavanagh uh and we were playing against adolfo um, Rodrigo Andrade and Nico Pires and, uh, and Bob Ginalis as well. So it was a full-on 26-goal practice. I haven't played for about nine months. Um, I'd been doing a whole crisis management thing in Brazil and I because I, I, I knew this was coming about sort of six months down the pipe and I was like, right, so I'm going to get really fit. I'm going to do loads of stretching. I'm going to do loads of yoga. I'm going to yeah. ride the horses loads. I'm going to get super fit. And then this thing kicked off in Brazil. And uh, I literally went into this operations management room uh, and came out sort of two months later and had just been sitting there eating and not moving. So it was massively unfit. Um, yeah, immediately went to sort of Palm Beach, super hot. I was melting. And um, and uh, I said, right, you, you, this, is, this is your team. And I was like, oh, no, this is just going to be awful. Um and I got got on my horse and I just couldn't get my stirrups right. And my horse was walking along and I was trying to do my stirrups. Um, and I looked up and my horse had walked to like the far corner of the pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I looked into the middle and all my heroes, you know, Adolfo, Facundo, Nico, um, you know, Diego Kavanagh, Juan Britos, <laughs> were all just looking at me going, what is this clown doing? What, what, is, what, is, what, is, what is, what's going on here? And um, so, oh, I can't imagine. uh, It was just awful. And I thought the stirrups are good as they're going to. I'm just going to have to tough it out. And uh, and I was on high gold horses, so I cantered into the middle and I stopped. And this thing just stopped so hard that I was up on the handlebars. You know, um, literally the only thing that kept me on is I had to hold on to one of the horse's ears in order to stop going over the front end. And I looked up. And Facundo Pires was just looking at me with these very, very blue eyes. And I could just see him looking at me going, this guy's going to die. He's at, there is just no way this guy's going to survive. Um, and the, and the, the ball went in and it was just... And they weren't even trying. The fastest I've ever been on a horse. And these guys wouldn't... This was just a bit of a practice, you know, just half speed for them. And it was just a level of speed and technicality um that I had just never come across. And I went from, you know, Nico was, you know, running to the ball and I was like, right, I've got him lined up for a for a hook or a ride off. And he just changed the line just like maybe one degree, two degrees. And I went from being absolutely fine to I'm gonna die. You know, it was just at the level of those guys horsemanship. And I've always watched the high goal and and you see the patrons and you're like, I, I could I could do that I could keep yeah. up um and then I was like nope absolutely I could not keep it. so in many respects it was the best day of my polo career and at the same time 
it was the worst experience. It was the most humbling, humiliating experience that you could possibly. But they were all so nice. They That's were amazing. they were so nice. That's amazing. You, you you think often that like these players are are really aggressive and like they hate they like yell at you and they like I hate playing with amateur players. It's 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 a uh, validating to hear that they're, they're yeah nice and they're like respectable. They, they were they were they were so nice, but I'd, I'd talk about it a little bit in one of the podcast episodes. But um, it was a very emotionally scarring time for me. So I came off at the end, and I was just, I, you know, I was just absolutely drained. And uh, my wife was like, "So what? Are you, what were you talking to? What were you talking to Facundo about?" Mm-hmm. I was like, I, "I didn't, I didn't speak to Facundo." She was like, "Yeah, you were, you were chatting to Facundo for ages." I was like, "I seriously, I didn't speak to Facundo." And she held the camera screen up, and she was like here's the picture of you and I'm riding onto the pitch and I've got Juan Britos on one side and I've got Facundo Pires on the one side and we're laughing and we're joking and I've got no memory of it whatsoever. You blacked Absolutely. out. Yeah, just completely, just completely blanked it. Wow. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. So wow. um, yeah, great. Um, what an amazing experience, but yeah, very humbling, you know, cause I thought I've got my polo gear. They're going to come up to me afterwards and go, Oh, our patrons just dropped out of this tournament. Yeah, you've got your gear here. We've got the horses. Why don't you come and join our team? But after that practice, I was like, nobody's ever, nobody's ever going to say that to me ever. <laughs> uh, but we're hoping, we're hoping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we always, we always hope. Yeah, you always got, you always got to have your whites and your gear in case someone gets tired. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. Uh, did you ask them to be on the podcast, or was that pre-podcast? Um, that was that was that was pre-podcast because that so that was sort of uh, 2018, yeah, 2018. Mm. So that yeah, we didn't start the podcast till till this year. But yeah. um, it's only a matter of time before they start calling us to ask them on the podcast. Of course, of course, it's they've probably already heard through it. Yeah, yeah. They, they just want yeah. They just want you to invite them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. The, the next section. Rapid fire, rapid fire, let's go. Do you have a favorite horse you've ever ridden? Yes. So favorite horse I've ever ridden. My first horse uh, was a horse called JJ. Um, it was all I could afford at the time. It was a terrible, terrible <laughs> polo pony. Uh, no, di- didn't go, didn't stop, didn't turn. But I loved that horse. Um, you know, he was a phenomenal, phenomenal horse. And um, love playing him. Um, a horse called Cremita, who um, was an ex-high gold pony, was phenomenal. Love playing that horse. And then we bred from Cremita. Uh, and one of the horses that I've got here with me is a horse called Danger Mouse, um, who's out of that, who's pretty much the same sort of body type, same sort of mentality. Um, so those are my sort of three. I, I know you asked for one, but I couldn't, I couldn't narrow it down to one. <laughs> Something about your first horse never goes away, right? Even oh, exactly. Absolute donkeys. Yeah. Um, what about like a favorite polo player? So, I mean, there's there's so many amazing talents that are out there at the moment. So, you know, the guys that I love watching at the moment are, are Heta, Heta Cassinola. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Facundo Pires is always going to be amazing to amazing to watch Adolfo just seeing his insight um and then just being able to play with my friends you know, 
Ross Dainsley, Ben Gilmore, um, another good, really good friend of us who's, who plays out in Kenya. Um, there's a guy called Casimir Gross. Uh, obviously, my wife, I have to say that. But no, I, I love playing, love playing with, love playing with, we, we just have so much fun. Um, I mean, pretty much any of my friends. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, what do you love to do outside of work? Um, oh, well. <laughs> I lo- yeah, I love to be with my family. Yeah. Love family time. I love to be on the farm. I love to be with my horses. Um, and, I, and I love playing polo and I love shoeing. I think mm. if I have my if I have my time again, um, you know, I love training horses and I love shoeing. So pretty much anything to do with horses is uh, and everything to do with horses is like doing outside of work. Knowing what you know now, what's one piece of advice you would give your younger self? As a as a player yeah. or as a or as a human being? We'll go with both. Okay. <laughs> so as a player, <laughs> take a lot more lessons. Mm. Um, you know, polo seems to be this thing that people have just enough lessons um, to get them playing, and then they kind of just stop. Um, just keep being, keep being coached. There's a reason that Roger Federer has has got a coach. There's a reason that um, you know, there's a there's a reason that Tiger Woods has has, has got a coach. You, you know, you can always be improving, regardless of whether it's your riding. Um, or you know any aspect of the game so stay being coached for as long as you can afford to to do that um i think as a as a young man uh, i think um you know, back yourself by all means listen to other people make your own decisions and, and 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 stick with your own decisions and and don't take other people's ideas and just try and follow them because you'll always be uh, a pale imitation of what they're doing and so just back yourself beautiful What's your favorite place you've ever ridden a horse? There's there's a there's a couple. So obviously Valiente in um, in Palm Beach just doesn't get any better than than, than Valiente when it comes to polo. Um, Montana Rocking Z, mm-hmm. amazing. Tota Grande, incredible. Um, and uh, and Norway, obviously up in the uh, either down here at our farm or, or or up in the mountains. So it's just yeah, I think those are, those are pretty much the best places. Do you ever take your polo ponies out to like a, a trail ride or something? Yep. Nice. Yep. So we, we've, we're, we're lucky in the fact we've got a small farm. It's about six hours drive from here. So we trailer, we trailer, we try and spend a couple of weeks up there in the summer. We take a couple of horses over this. It's good for them to have a complete mental break. And um, we go out there and trail ride around the mountains. And that's what I got to come, come by when. Yeah. When yeah. That. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then my last question is if you could have dinner with three people in history, dead or alive, who would you bring on? Um, so if I could have dinner with three people, it would be my wife and kids. I would, you know, no, nothing beats, nothing beats time with the family. And when I saw this question, I was like, who would I, you know, who would I want to, who would I want to sort of have it? And I think there's a great, saying you know never meet your heroes mm-hmm. and um i think it's all you know they're, ne- they're not necessarily going to live up to expectations over an extended period so i'd kind of like to leave all the people that i'm super interested in so i'm a big fan of roman history uh, i'm a big fan of medieval history 
I'm a big sort of, uh, you know, I love all the sort of civil war, you know, love, big civil war buff. So there's a lot of characters from that era who are incredibly interesting and unbelievably accomplished. Um, but you can't help feeling that you'd only ever see the downside of those people. So it's best to leave them, this is those icons on their pillar mm-hmm. uh, and, and leave them to it. Some golden nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Nick, thank you so, so much. Uh, I can't be any more grateful, uh, not only for our friendship, but also the fact that you're on here on the, on the podcast. I, I, I can't believe it. So uh, thank you so, so much for spending an hour or so with me. I really, really appreciate it. Not at all. I mean, we're going to get you. We're going to get you on ours. So um, we'll get you. We'll we'll line you up for some abuse with the guys from the Energy Podcast. <laughs> that makes me nervous. <laughs> And so it should. There's a scary bunch. Scary bunch. <laughs>